Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Just a quick note before we begin that our upcoming book, The CanadaLand Guide to Canada, is 50% off until Sunday for listeners of this podcast. Go to Indigo and search for the book or go to canadalandshow.com slash book. This episode is brought to you by CAMH One Brave Night, a Canada-wide challenge happening now until tomorrow, April 7th, to raise funds for people living with mental illness and addiction. Together, we can redefine what normal is, and we can show those affected that it is okay to speak out about how they're feeling and seek help. Please join me now and sign up for the CAMH One Brave Night Challenge by visiting onebravenight.ca slash CanadaLand. Hilary Beaumont. Jesse Brown. Reporter at Vice News. And uh, guest now and then. Yeah. It's good to have you back. We are going to talk today about how a uh, 10-part CBC documentary on the history of Canada is tearing this nation apart. We're going to talk about why I actually need to stand up for Leah McLaren. Oh, no. <laughs> and Hillary, we're going to talk about what you learned that CSIS was secretly watching the protests at Standing Rock, where you were reporting. Yeah, yeah. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Danny Brown, Ben Connolly, Julian Higari Nunez, Katerina Kwan, Jacob, Christina Petrolini, Arshdeep Singh, and Kerry McDonald. Kerry, why did you decide to be awesome? Because you provide me with information that I don't get from other sources on the Canadian media scene. And Hillary, this episode is brought to everybody by Casper Mattresses. I don't really know where you're at with this uh, 
this mattress thing? My mattress is fine, thank you. That's okay. <laughs> Listen, some people like to pay exorbitant markup. That's your jam. That's fine. But Casper has cut out the middlemen, figured out a better way. It is a sleep brand that has created one perfect mattress that is sold directly to consumers. So the commission-driven, inflated prices, all that's gone. This is an award-winning sleep surface developed in-house. It has a sleek design. You need a sleek mattress. It is delivered in a small, how do they even do that, size box. No risk. You can send this thing back, risk-free, no charge, after 100 nights if you don't like it. But I think you'll love it. Those of you who do need a mattress, I am like going on a year and change on my Casper mattress, and I've never slept better. This is a good mattress. It is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foams are combined to create just the right sleep surface. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it is quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Again, free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. Risk-free, designed, developed, and assembled in the United States of America, people. Go to casper.com slash CanadaLand. You'll get 50 bucks off of their already very fair low prices when you use the offer code CanadaLand. Terms and conditions apply. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Welcome. We are explorers. Risk takers. And dreamers. Winter is one season out of four, and yet it defines us more than the other three seasons combined. And one unwieldy canoe must be hauled up a mountain. It's what the French Canadians call a portage. 
It's very important to use surprise because, for example, in a fight, what you don't see coming, that's what knock you out. Something you don't see coming, that's what that's 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 what gonna get you. Across a vast continent, we build a nation. Truly strong and free. So this is CBC's big docudrama, 10-part series to commemorate the 150th. And right off the bat, we're in trouble. They describe the history of Canada as an epic quest for treasure. The question that this series asks is, how do these fearless adventurers in a wild and hostile land create a nation of tolerance and justice? <laughs> Which is like, like all right, right before you even begin, like every part of that is a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people, especially Indigenous people around the Canada 150 theme, have been raising issues about, you know, what is the true history of Canada? Like I said, it's an epic quest for treasure <laughs> by explorers, risk takers, and dreamers. So they have a bunch of historians on it in between the dramatic reenactments, trying to give this thing some like substance and solidity. But, you know, historians are boring, so they got to throw some celebrities in there. Adam Agoya and David Suzuki, Jim Balsilli, for some reason, of Rim Blackberry. He's in there. I don't know why. And then when it comes time to have like some French celebrities in, they have a ultimate fighter who's like turning everything in Canadian history to like a fighting analogy. Okay. And there's a, a, a Quebecois dancer talking about Canada's history for some reason. You're making me really want to watch it. <laughs> I think the sheer level of fiasco is worth a watch. You might be disappointed. It's kind of boring, but when you consider they're just going to have to keep going with this thing, they're just deeply, deeply committed. Here is who is pissed off so far, and they're only two episodes in. Historians, academics, literature professors, they are pissed off. They wrote a letter to the Globe and Mail, a group of them. They complain that this is told from a strictly Anglo-Canadian perspective, that 12,000 years of Aboriginal history condensed into just a few minutes. Then there's 150 years of New France, all in the first episode out of 10. So that's all like in New France, Indigenous history, that's done with. Here's a problem. The attempts that the series makes to have self-representation of Indigenous people, the key commentator so far has been Joseph Boyden <laughs> uh, for <laughs> Indigenous Canadians. That's a problem. The French Canadians depicted don't speak French properly, apparently. Hmm. And are always depicted in like dirty furs, whereas the British are depicted, no matter what, they could have just fought a battle or climbed a mountain. They're always like these like noble Englishmen. Was everyone wearing furs? Like, let's be clear about this. I, you know, I just think like The Revenant, which has its own problems, at least made things interesting by like regarding the fact that it was brutal and gross and people were diseased and covered in, like no one looked good. So everyone was covered in sores and fur. Yeah, sores, fur, dying of gangrene, that right, kind of stuff. Right. And like, you know, these were plunderers, you know, and that's more interesting than that they were like fearless entrepreneurs or whatever. Mm -hmm. And like these were fearless entrepreneurs in a hostile land. It was the land that was hostile, not the... <laughs> I mean, my take on it, just like watching, was like, oh, this is cheesy. Like, it, it's that thing of like the docudrama you watch in, in class in high school where it looks like they just took a bunch of like actra people to the woods and gave them wigs. Hmm. And you keep expecting somebody to pull out an iPhone or for, like a plane to fly overhead. Like, they just don't get past the suspension of disbelief. There are more people who are pissed off about this. The premier of Nova Scotia. Oh, my God. My hometown. So they basically wrote Nova Scotia out of the history of Canada. That's normal. That is the history of Canada. <laughs> Well, that's the funny thing is that they're actually repeating all of the actual things yeah. in, in doing this wrong. The first European settlement depicted as in Quebec in the show, that's not right. So we've got Liberal MP Colin Fraser calling out his own head of his party, Justin Trudeau, for the omission of the Acadians and for this misrepresentation of the first settlement. And the Premier of Nova Scotia, Stephen McNeil, has protested and complained about this show. They're only two episodes in. 
I haven't seen it yet. I would love to see it. But yeah, I mean, it's a question of whose history you're telling, right? And so, you know, is it white Canadians? Is it white French Canadians? Is it British? Is it Indigenous history? I think that the CBC has clearly been interested in telling more Indigenous stories. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, why this seems to be an Anglo-centric docu-series from what people are saying. Yeah, I think that's just it, is that if, if you had kind of gone Ken Burns on this and just said, we're just going to tell it to you in a very historically accurate way, it would have been a lot more interesting, first of all. But because a lot of the 150th festivities seem to want to find some way to tell a very happy celebratory story that we've ended up in a nation of tolerance and justice, but also we had some dark days. And that's how this whole thing is capped off. Justin Trudeau introduces the whole series. And, you know, it's the same thing. Like, yes, we have some dark pages in our history, but we're still great. So there you've got the NDP saying like, what the fuck? Like this is supposed to be at the arm's length public broadcaster. Why is Justin Trudeau co-signing and endorsing and appearing on this show? It doesn't pass the smell test, said the Friends of Canadian Broadcasting, like lobby group who are trying to make sure that we don't conflate the Liberal Party with the CBC. There's just something for everybody to take issue with. I think the only people who are actually watching this thing are people who are offended by it. Oh my God, then I have to start watching it. No, I'm kidding. Um, But I do think that the framing is the issue, right? If you're talking about Canada 150, you're not talking about the 11,000 years that Indigenous people have been on this land, right? So you're starting with, oh, like, you know, when the explorers got here, just like you said, in search of treasures and beaver pelts and land and in search of a place that they could take. We're not talking about that, right? We're not seeing it in that light automatically because the starting point is, look what we did in 150 years. We did it, Canada. I don't think that any history has ever been interesting if you start off from the position of this kind of needy, like, it's really interesting, guys, and it has a happy ending. Like, the history is the story of atrocities, and that's what kind of— Yeah, but that's so depressing, Jesse. Like, we can't be depressed about history. Let's broaden this, though, because it's like the Globe and Mail has been very critical of the CBC, both in publishing that piece by the academics and representing like this growing list. It's becoming a bit of a debacle as people are finding like real historical inaccuracies and political problems with it. And the Globe and Mail is digging them. But then the Globe and Mail gets into trouble. If we broaden this to like talk about what's happening with the 150th in general, because you've got Jody Wilson-Rabot talking about after a trip to South Africa, that there's lessons here in what apartheid has to tell us about our own history, arguably of apartheid in Canada, and the globe basically was, tut, 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 let's not go that far. You know, there's some serious differences between South Africa and Canada. I mean, South Africa, indigenous population was the majority when Europeans showed up and remained the majority. And Canada was the sparsely populated whatever it was. So then you've got Senator Maurice Sinclair going, basically, that's a racist trope. Like, of course, the Europeans were the minority when they first came here. And the idea that it was sparsely populated is like, it was always been this longstanding justification for plundering Canada. It goes on and on. Like, we've got now Trudeau also co-signing Labatt 50. Did you happen to see this? No, I didn't see this. Labatt 50 announced that they're changing their name to Labatt 150. Oh, lovely. And then Trudeau is like, great, you're my favorite beer. Labatt 50 is piss beer. I've said this on Twitter and people are like, hey, that's classist. There's old guys in the Legion. It's also been appropriated by hipsters. It's like Canada's answer to Paps Blue Ribbon. Like that's going on. But like, forget about how gross that beer is. It's fucking owned by Anheuser-Busch. Labatt's is a Belgian company. So now brewers are getting pissed off at Justin Trudeau because like, <laughs> you know what? If CBC had just done the story of us, a 10-part series on craft brewers across Canada, I think they could have inspired a lot more patriotic feeling if they just gone to each community and celebrated beer makers. Yeah, sure. Through all of this, what I'm seeing is that the really 
is a need for us to understand our history better. And so this series was a good idea, you know, like a good start, right? Like, okay, we need to understand the history of Canada and what it was before maybe. But I mean, it's just missed the mark at a time that we do need to know more. We're only just beginning this 150th totally. thing. I think we need to have um, a Labatt 150 drinking game for the history of us. Yes, every powdered wig, you have to drink another Canada 150. Hillary, can we duly note some yeah, things? Yeah, let's duly note some stuff. What do you have for us today? I'm duly noting my own story. That's okay. Uh, it's partly self-promotion because you should go read about this, but it's also something I'm really mad AF about. So there, basically there's a mine that's co-owned by a Canadian mining company. It's in Papua New Guinea. And for years and years and years, there's been a ton of violence around this mine. And there have been reports of rampant rapes by both local police that are supported by the mining company and uh, by security hired by the mining company. I think I've talked to more than 20 women at this point in the last two years who have been raped at this mining site or raped by police supported by this mining company. And um, it's infuriating to me that no one's really covering this other than us, but then also I think the National Observer has covered it, the Walrus has covered it, but I'm not really seeing like mass coverage of this issue. And it's something that I really care about. And I'm talking to these women at early times in the morning, late at night, and they're, you know, they're mad as fuck about this. I'm mad as fuck about this, and I don't see any coverage of it. Yeah, this is important work that people should check out. It's not just about ego gratification or self-promotion and trying to get people what happens with a story like this is, and it's dangerous for journalists to get too involved in impact, but you do want to see this story have legs so that it can get put to policymakers so that maybe something could happen. I mean, you know what, I, I understand you don't want to involve yourself too much in like when does it cross over to activism, but to do work like this and connect with the people and then sort of fall to this Canadian code in journalism of like, well, that's a vice scoop. So we're just not going to touch that over here. That's a problem. It's not about scoops at this point. I've written enough about it in the last two years. I'm kind of hoping that at some point somebody picks it up. Like, I would love to see CBC cover it. You know, this is happening right now. There, I spoke to a woman last week who she says she was raped at gunpoint by three policemen and her house was burned down. That's insane. And we should be paying attention to this. What has Barrick Gold's uh, response to all this been? So they've actually set up a compensation method for these women. So they, for a time, were able to come to the company and get compensated for what happened. But a lot of the women are saying that the compensation was minuscule or it's been unevenly applied. Mm -hmm. So some women got more compensation than others by a lot. And some women weren't compensated at all and they missed out. They don't dispute that rapes have happened at that mine and they've compensated more than 100 women for that. They say they're investigating new allegations, but at the same time, the women are saying that their complaints aren't being recognized. So, you know, I don't really know what to believe in there. When I'm talking to these women, they're experiencing a lot of things that are extremely fucked up. They're experiencing rape. I know that women in Canada as well are experiencing sexual assault. I don't know why we can't connect those two issues at some level. Duly noted. I have a very insignificant and silly thing to bring up. Russell Peters at the Junos, what were they thinking? Like, yes, this was a terrible making like statutory rape jokes at the Junos. But like, have they watched the Russell Peters routine? What are they thinking getting Howie Mandel to MC the Canadian Screen Awards? Like there is this weird insecurity where we 
seem to bring in these ringers who are just like, who's the most famous person we could possibly get who has no connection to the actual things that they're there to honor. So they just kind of fall back on whatever routines and acts they've been doing anyhow. Mm -hmm. What did he say again? Uh, Looking out of the crowd, he said, wow, there's a lot of young women here. And the quote is, it's a felony waiting to happen. Oh, God, really? Um... Yeah. And then when the heritage minister, Melanie Jolie, was coming on to speak, he's like, I don't even know who she is, but she's hot. So let's check it out. It's very bro-y kind of stuff. Yeah. Not funny is the problem. Like, I think that he would probably say, like, look, you hired a comedian. I'm going to have to risk offending people to be funny. The problem is it wasn't very funny. Yeah, it wasn't funny. Like, at least be funny. I mean, it kind of reminds me of when I was at a YG and Kamaya concert a few months back. Like, YG came out and he was like, fuck Donald Trump. And like, that was his whole tour was fuck Donald Trump, right? This is an all ages show, by the way, in Toronto. Then then a few minutes later, he was like, show me them titties. And it was like, what? Wait, what? Like, you just you hate Donald Trump. He sucks. Yeah. Like, you know, and a few girls did flash him. And so I'm just like, oh, my God, really? Is this really happening right now? Some cognitive dissonance there. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the dissonance between like we're here to celebrate Canadian art, but we can't actually have somebody who's representative of it on the stage because nobody would know who the hell they are. Duly mm-hmm. noted. Okay, very quickly, I would like to thank our second sponsor, Tunnel Bear. This is getting increasingly important because this is about internet privacy and security. And some of the news we're getting from the states around the ability for internet service providers to sell your data. We need to be very mindful of this stuff, whether you're a journalist or not. Tunnel Bear protects your surfing. If you're using public Wi-Fi in a coffee shop, a conference, a hotel, Anywhere where you are afraid about being intercepted, that is where Tunnel Bear comes in handy to secure your connection and protect your privacy. Your internet connection is encrypted. Your IP address is hidden. Your online activity is private. Also, Tunnel Bear has a top-rated privacy policy, so no one is going to get your information through them. They don't even log your user activity. In addition to protecting your privacy, you can also tunnel to 20 different countries and use the internet as if you're in that other country. You can try Tunnel Bear for free with 500 megabytes per month of free surfing, no credit card required. To get your bear, just visit tunnelbear.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Hillary, I was off last week when Leah McLaren happened. Mm-hmm. Attempted breastfeeding. Yes, the supposed attempted breastfeeding of Michael Chong's, wow, of Michael Chong's baby who was not born yet, but it did happen. <laughs> She's, everybody knows this. Do we? So she said she was 25. It did happen, but she was like 31. Okay. I loved this column, first of all. That's yeah, not what I'm going to defend. Very humorous. It was, it was totally, as the best lead of any Leah McLaren column I've ever read. It's totally pointless. There's no, nothing <laughs> of any substance or value to it. But it is the kind of thing, and I'm sure this is where it comes from, the kind of story that like somebody tells you over drinks about some embarrassing thing that they did. And you're like, wow, that is a hilarious, freakish story. And you were really wrong in that story. But that was entertaining. Mm-hmm. That's her job. That's that's why they hired Leah is to write confessional oversharing stories like that. But this one went wrong. And she took the hit for it. I'm told that, that she was told that she disgraced the Globe and Mail. They haven't said anything publicly. Like there's like not a whisper There was a memo that we published filled with weird coded jargon from editor-in-chief David Walmsley about processes and groupthink and standards. The only person, not her editor, not the Globe, not PageMasters, where they outsource a lot of stuff. Did someone at PageMasters hit publish too soon? Is this story actually about 
how with editorial resources being degraded, stuff gets published before it's been adequately vetted. There's a lot of people involved in briefly publishing this faux breastfeeding story. Only Lee McLaren is taking the fall for this so far. And I have to say, that's it just doesn't seem right. Like It's her job to push, and it's her editor's job to say too far. McLean stood by Andrew Potter, apologized to him, as I think the Globe owes Leah McLaren an apology, because it's their job to keep their writers safe and edit them. McGill didn't stand by Potter, nor did McGill show any transparency whatsoever. We still don't know if his resignation was demanded by McGill's principal. It obviously was, but we don't have that on the record. We still don't know if that was because of political pressure, which there was tons of. And I'm going to like add another anecdote to this whole thing where Ryerson University, some, some filmmaking students did a little documentary on Niagara Falls and how the touristy glitz and glamour, such as it is of Niagara Falls, stands in contrast to like the decrepitude and the economic problems that Niagara Falls has. Totally fair topic for documentary makers. It was a nicely well-made little video that people should check out. And the head of Ryerson ends up apologizing to Niagara Falls. Am I imagining something here to seeing like institutions that are supposed to be about providing a space for ideas and difficult ideas failing, McGill failing, Ryerson failing, the Globe and Mail failing to create an environment where it's safe for people to just say stuff and explore ideas and be provocative. So which ones are you actually concerned with? Because like in what I'm seeing, Ryerson didn't do exactly the same thing as what the Globe and McGill did. I guess to different degrees, each of them have very quickly abandoned any idea. Like you don't hear anyone saying what you would hope to hear as the first position. McGill was very quick to tweet, the opinions of Andrew Potter are not the opinions of me. Like no one thinks that the opinions of Andrew Potter or any McGill staffer or any McGill academic are the opinions of McGill the institution. Even for McGill to tweet that is like kind of crazy. Like it, it sort of like belies the idea of what a university is and what a community of ideas and communication exists for. It's all concerning, I, I guess I'd say. And, and I, I guess it's it's revealing to me the extent to which these institutions exist for other reasons and are just sort of like players in larger systems of influence and their economic institutions. Like you don't hear a lot of these high-minded principles about like, well, no, we have to protect something here that like, why are we even here? What is this newspaper magazine? What, what is this university? Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think that maybe with these three stories that you're talking about, or the video and the two columns, the concern with the institutions was more about the brand of the institutions and not that these things actually created harm. Of course, that's what it's about. Of course. I mean, they should be concerned about their brands for other reasons. But Ideally, you know, a, a university would produce tons of harmful ideas. A university would, would produce tons of opinions that offend people. That's sort of the point. They can contradict each other. You hope that the scholarship is of a high level. But there's an important right that's being forgotten here, I think, in all of these examples, which is we need the freedom to be wrong. I exercise that that freedom frequently. You need to, like, if you are afraid, like, wow, if I'm wrong here, or if enough people are angry, I could lose my job. And a lot of people say, like, Andrew Potter, you're asking me to cry tears for Andrew Potter or Leah McLaren? Come on, they're going to be fine. Like, it's the actual radical academic who has an idea or a thesis that is really going to offend some people, but there might be some insider truth to. They are the ones watching this, and it's a cautionary tale where you're like, wow, if that can happen to Andrew Potter, who is like a celebrated and feted member of like, a, like you know, you see the people who came out, Michael Ignatieff and Andrew Coyne, and people came to protect their, their friend Andrew Potter. If you were actually saying something that was like aggressively contrary to popular opinion, I would be very afraid. Yeah, and I think that people 
in all of this have forgotten. The Walrus published a piece on this that like editors have a role in this too, just like you were saying. Like the role of editors is to kind of decide what they want to say in this publication, whether they're saying something that's of value, whether they're putting something out there that is like contributing in some way to a broader discussion that needs to be had. And if you're putting these columns out there, you know, I think that you need to stand by them if you're going to do it, right? There has to be like a really high bar for pulling things down when they do get published. Mm -hmm. And there's also, you know, we need to not forget that there's a back and forth between editors and writers a lot of the time about ideas. Even when you, you know, submit a draft, it goes through a lot of edits and back and forths. And so maybe in these cases of these columns, it just needed a better editor at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, I think the Globe, there was a time when they could have given Leah some hell about this before they published it, where they say, like, you know what, if you're not going to do the basic math to figure out that your timeline is off, which like any just referring to publicly available information, people know what your age is, people know what the ages of Michael Chong's kids are, like you're you're kind of a dangerous writer because, you know, that's just a level of diligence that I would expect of people who are freelancing for us. But once they fail to check that and hit publish, it's like, where does the buck stop? I think responsibility then shifts from Leah to the editors. Obviously, there's some stuff in their internal processes here, like we don't have full transparency on what happened. But in the absence of that, it's all on her. And this is part of a trend. It's, you know, it's Margaret Wente. It's the the secret suspension. Like, why is this happening? What does it mean? Who cares that she's suspended? They put a gag order on her. Like, that, that upset me almost more than leaving her out to dry in other ways, that she's not allowed to talk about it. To me, that's like a big deal. Like, committing a writer to secrecy feels like a real intrusion on something that we need to kind of protect. Yeah, that sounds a bit much. <laughs> okay, let's talk about what you found out. This was an A-tip? That... Yeah, like I kind of figured that CSIS would be watching Standing Rock, so I put in an A-tip asking if they're watching Standing Rock. So got back two secret reports that they were watching Standing Rock. One of them was a report about Standing Rock and what implications it has for Canada, because obviously there are resistance movements against pipelines here as well. And a lot of the resistance has been cross-border for very similar reasons. And people are willing to put up a fight, put up encampments in Canada as well. I get confused about what CSIS, who they're allowed to spy on and who they're not. Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> you, know to, like, you can spy on other people, but not Canadians, or I get lost in this. And then I mean, CSC. maybe law enforcement is confused about that too. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so what did you learn from these documents? So these documents just showed that they were watching closely with Standing Rock and also with a second secret report was showing that they were watching instances of pipeline sabotage. So when activists would go into private areas of pipelines and shut off valves. So this is something that's happened in Canada as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's something that's increasing because activists are saying, you know, we have to do something to save the planet and like this is the only thing we can do or something, you know, very extreme, but people are doing it. And so both of these CSIS reports were about these activities and what implications they would have for Canada. Is it like drone surveillance? Is that like... No, that, it's like not. It's like, okay, so one person uh, who was responding to this when I tweeted was saying, okay, is this like armchair surveillance? Is this like couch surveillance? So like, are they just reading media reports and then writing up right. a report on like, what kind of implications could this have for Canada? But it did look like they, you know, they had included photos of the camp and photos of the activists who shut down the pipelines in the reports. Some of it was whited out, which is what they do now instead of blacking things out because it looks bad. Um, but some of it was whited out. 
<laughs> so, you know, there might be other intelligence there that wasn't from media reports, and I'm pretty sure there would have been. I'm not sure exactly how they're watching. So just to broaden this out, there's like a context for this uh, where to do your job as a journalist, there are precautions you got to take at the border. Your colleague, Ben McCoo, the courts just determined that he has no right to hold on to his source material for that story that uh, RCMP is demanding all of his files on this uh, ISIS member he was in contact with. So there's increasing anxiety, but even like formal like aggression against the ability for journalists to do their jobs. You're moving back and forth between the border for your coverage. Can you tell me a little bit about stuff that you're thinking about now that you might not have thought about a couple of years ago? Yeah, I'm profoundly creeped out by police surveillance at this point on both sides of the border. And part of that is, you know, because of these Standing Rock reports or Ed U, a photojournalist, was uh, stopped at the border and his border security tried to confiscate his phones. And border security are increasingly confiscating people's phones in the GTA and Quebec. And I learned that through another ATIP, CBSA ATIP. Border security are confiscating phones in... In Toronto and in uh, in Quebec. How does a border guard confiscate your phone in Toronto? So they can actually seize your phone at the border. They can like ask you for your phone, basically, if you want to come into Canada and they can take it. If you're an, like a, a non-Canadian coming into Canada? Uh, yeah, or if you're a Canadian citizen, that's happened before. You're trying to come back into Canada and they can say, we, we, you have to give us your phone or you yeah, I mean, you can say no, but then they can detain you. Like there's there's a bunch of stuff they can do. People I've talked to about this have called it like a zone of limited expectation of privacy, which is super Orwellian. It's something that's come up a lot lately. So when you say GTA, you mean border crossings that like... So the CBSA, when I asked for this data, they broke it down by region. They didn't uh-huh. break it down by entry point. So they broke it down by like, you know, Atlantic, GTA, Southern Ontario, Northern Ontario, Quebec, like all across the country. So confiscation of computers and phones is actually down over the last five years overall in Canada. And it doesn't compare at all to the thousands of phones that are seized in the US, for sure. However, there is a certain upward trend in the GTA and Quebec with border agents seizing phones. So I guess we just don't know exactly what that means or where that means. Yeah, I mean, they didn't give me a lot of other information about that, but I'm asking for it. Same with Quebec. They just said Quebec. Yeah, exactly. They just said, here's the number of phones, you know, and you can see an upward trend. And these are the first numbers we've had about this because there have been increased reports at the border of people's phones being seized, not just journalists, but, you know, a lot of different people. And so this has led to the question of what you should do at the border. Yeah. Should you wipe your phone completely or should you use two-step verification? There are all of these different... What do you do? What's your what's your data hygiene at the border? The last time I went to the States, I brought a phone that I wiped. So like an old phone. You brought a burner. Yeah, exactly. You can bring a burner or you can like wipe most of your phone off or you can like log out of things so that they have to demand your passwords, which they can do. Yeah. Oh man, you it's actually your password. You could so say no scary. and then you could either be detained or turned away. Yeah. I was thinking like, do you bring a burner and then like put your real phone like somewhere else or at least you got something to show them or like do you just there not want to no have- There are no clear answers on this. Like just to be totally clear, this, yeah. is, this is something where people are trying to figure this out. I don't have any answers for that. I don't. It's really terrifying because it's like, they get your phone, and so what does that mean? Like, just they could just copy the entire thing. At which point, they got not access to just what data is on there. Probably your passwords. They can get into your whole social life, your whole data life, which yep. is, is 
our lives at this point. Mm-hmm. And then it seems to me like there's really no clear answer on who they're going to share that with. I mean, if there's any clarity, it's that they will share it. So the information could easily get out of the hands of your own government into the American government. I mean, it's just like, I can't think of a more thorough invasion of privacy that isn't like on a really physical level. But yeah. it's in, in a sense, much more invasive. For sure. Like just as an example, like last week, a friend of mine said that like her ex went through her phone. It feels very similar, basically. Mm-hmm. Like this is a similar level of invasion of privacy that, you know, someone could just demand your phone and your password at the border and go through it or that, you know, police through warrants or maybe without warrants could demand information from journalists or surveil journalists in Canada. This is just a thing now that we have to worry about. Yeah. I actually want to backtrack. The distinction between physical privacy doesn't even exist because they have your GPS coordinates. So it's like, you know, an ex goes through your texts or emails to see who you're talking to. Here they just sort of have in reserve this document, this perfect diary of your life for as long as you've had a digital existence. So if some point in the future they want to know, cross-reference your information with somebody else's or see where you were in the world or anything, like that just exists in ambiguous hands, foreign governments forever. And then we've seen enough data breaches and hacking that could easily leak out and be just something that's available like as a torrent download or something. Yeah, are you freaked out yet? I'm pretty freaked out. It's so freaky, you know, like you kind of can't live. And so you can either just like not do stuff, which increasingly people are not going to the States, or you can just say, ah, I got nothing to hide and, you know, take your chances, I guess. I mean, you know, this is the big story. We know enough to be terrified, but it's just a hard thing to communicate. Like, here's what it's going to do to you and then show an example of somebody who has suffered the consequences. Though that's less true than it was when I covered this stuff as my day-to-day job. Like, Increasingly, like everything else, like climate change, it happens to poorer people and it happens to racialized people first. And so there's still a level where it's not cared about by mainstream. It'll happen. Wait. Yeah, it will happen to you. Okay. (laughs) That's scary as fuck. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. (laughs) Thank you for joining me, Hillary. Thank you for having me. Thank you for ending on such a light note. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can email me anytime at jesse at canadalandshow.com. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Canadaland. Hillary, where can people find you? At Hillary Beaumont. H-I-L-A-R-Y-B-E-A-U-M-O-N-T. Our website is canadalandshow.com and our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. Quick reminder that our book is on sale for 50% off of pre-orders until Sunday. So if you think you're going to buy this book, why not just buy it now? The show is produced by Russell Gregg with our new junior producer, Allie Graham. Welcome, Allie. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.